Thank you for listening to the Your Mindful Coach podcast, part of the Center for Self-Care Network. This is Mark Balser. Today's episode is a third in the series of four positive habit change offerings in the fall of 2018. This episode excludes the guided meditations, but you can find the meditation separately or as part of the full talk by visiting our podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thank you. I'm going to hijack your your habit change a little bit um, by introducing uh, the habit of self-compassion uh, into our practice. And I think it, it, uh, it fits pretty nicely just because we have to have some self-compassion as we're launching these habits that don't necessarily go the way, way we'd hope. Uh, many of us picked two, that observation and the restraint. And uh, I know at least for me, one went way better than the other and the other went poorly enough to say that it actually kind of went backwards. <laughs> not, not, not in a terrible way, but uh, yeah, uh, and, that, and that happens. I'm a student of habits, not a teacher of habits. <laughs> and just to give you a little background on my own self-compassion path, I thought I'd share something I wrote quite some time ago, two, three years ago. Uh, about my path on, on mindfulness and a, a speed bump I found along the way. So in the summer of 2013, I had developed a mindfulness practice and was thrilled with my more relaxed and less reactive approach to living. At the same time, there was something not quite right. Through the practice of compassion, I had begun to treat others with more dignity and love, especially in difficult and confrontational circumstances. But I had a bypass. I would spend my day in kindness and curiosity, and then return home to deliver a toxic dose of judgment and criticism upon myself. I would unleash the built-up built frustration, anger, and sadness uh, that I'd gathered through a typical day. My specialty was shame. I heard the voice in my head declare, who do you think you are? You're a failure. Just give up. Your time to shine is over. It's been said we are very attached to our suffering. The work of self-compassion reminds us that much of our suffering comes from our own self-criticism. Granted, these can be internalized messages from our past, these ones, our well-worn path, our childhood, and even our current experience. But as with the practice of mindfulness, we may not have control of our circumstances, but we can choose how we respond to them. So that's kind of a a background for what I hope we can dive into today. Uh, so there's some practices related to self-compassion that come from this woman named Kristen Neff. Uh, if you look up the word self-compassion on a Google search, she has 19 of the 20 uh, results. It just says Kristen Neff, Kristen Neff, Kristen Neff. Can you imagine being the Google search for self-compassion? So I'll have this afterwards, we can take a look at it. And so uh, among other things, uh, she investigates this work of self-compassion in the context of our kind of our, our early evolution, our kind of caveman and cavewoman times, um, that we have this monitoring system that's biologically very adaptive, um, that uh, when we're scared, 
by physical threats, except for we don't have a whole lot of those physical threats anymore. Most of them are emotional and psychological. We've got this whole system in our brain that bypasses the thinking brain, the moral brain, and gets us amped up, sends cortisol throughout our body, adrenaline throughout our body, moves the blood out of our brain and our belly and moves them into our legs and our, our uh, butt so we can run and jump and, and get away. And so part of Kristen Neff's model for bringing on self-compassion is moving us into a state where we're uh, settling our body, balancing our body um, through tools like the breath and um, touch. So um, we'll come back to the practice of self-compassion, but I think it'd be nice to check in a, a little bit. Now, are you, I forget, are you partners? Wow, so look at that. The, the people that are here are here with their partners. That's pretty, pretty awesome, pretty amazing, the power of that um, accountability in, in a practice. And I've already heard from a couple of folks who said, yeah, you know, the habit, eh. But the connection that we've made has been meaningful. Um, I shared that my two habits that I was working on were going to be um, exercising and no news, well, less technology. Um, and so I'm happy to report that uh, I'm exercising. And one of the secrets of that was that accountability partner, my friend John, who hasn't even been to this class, uh, was appointed by me to be my accountability partner. And uh, I'm just calling him every day and telling him I exercise today. Now, uh, interestingly enough, uh, today is the day I missed. Um, so it's good that we're talking about patience and self-compassion. Um, and my technology uh, habit, we'll talk a little bit more later, but uh, one of the things I decided to do is to break that up into smaller, more achievable uh, habits because the big plan of no news isn't really happening. So there's a poem I wanted to share with you. Um, and we'll talk for a few minutes about kind of the patience of a practice and breaking it into smaller parts. And then uh, we'll, we'll uh, have some time to dig into self-compassion as well. Um, this poem is called Start Close In. It's from an author and poet named David White. Uh, and uh, I'll be sure to share this with you by email afterwards as well. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know. The pale ground beneath your feet. Your own way to begin the conversation. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To hear another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes a private ear that can really listen to another. Start right now. Take a small step you can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in. The step you don't want to take. That's a tall order, <laughs> all right? 
<laughs> perhaps easier said than done. But uh, I, I don't think I'll do a whole lot of review because you are so on top of this practice here. Um, but simple, small, specific is what really makes this stuff happen. There's our tree. And then last time we, we just kind of introduced this concept of cue, craving, routine, and reward. Um, since I last saw you, Atomic Habits was released. Uh, James Clear, which is uh, the, the kind of my mentor when it comes to habits. So he, this is all his, his great work. Um, and we, we talked about this idea of uh, how to support the habits we want and, and hurt the habits we don't want. That was on the handout that I shared with you last time, but I've got a copy of it here too. Um, and so with our cues, we want to make them obvious for the good habits and invisible for the bad habits. So um, I'm thinking, I think I shared with you that I quit Mountain Dew about nine months or so ago. And for me, that cue was removing Mountain Dew from our house completely. It was everywhere. I had stashes all over the place. Um, or uh, the second step, craving. So making it attractive. Uh, one of the possibilities to make it attractive, uh, these, these uh, habits attractive, is this, uh, this tracking sheet. You know, give yourself some kind of reward um, and some way to, to see your progress along that. Um, our routines, we want to make them easy, those good habits, and difficult, the bad habits. So what I ultimately did with Mountain Dew, I removed it from my house. I didn't say I could, had to stop drinking Mountain Dew, but I couldn't buy it more than one can at a time. So if I wanted to have a Mountain Dew, I had to get in my car, drive to the Wawa, buy the Mountain Dew. I couldn't drink it in the car. I had to drive it back to the house. So it, like I did it, but it felt a little bit silly. Um, and so that helped me bridge the gap between really wanting to do it and actually doing it. Um, and then back to that reward, making it satisfying. So seeing the results of our tracking sheet, something along those lines. He has all different kinds of um, suggestions in his book as well. Um, so some fun things that he's shared with me. Um, it's the math of habit building. Uh, so starting small and building on that. I think I might have shared minimum effective dose with you last time. If I didn't, um, you know, it's the, the medication term, but minimum effective dose is basically the least we can do to still get the effect that we want. Uh, there's a runner that's run for like seven or eight minutes every day for like 30 years. And you think, well, did he ever get really faster? But for her health, uh, it was really positive impact. And you never have 30 minutes every day. You'll always find a day where you just literally could not find 30 minutes. But how about seven? Can we all find seven minutes in a day? Um, and so there's model. If we do 1% better every day, so these are more quantifiable habits, um, for a year, so let's say I started running one minute every uh, one minute on the first day, and then the next day I ran for one minute and 0.6 seconds, you know, 1% more, and the next day 1.16 and so on. Uh, sorry, minutes. Uh, if I started here at one minute and got 1% more running each day, by the end of that year, 365 days, I'd be running for 38 minutes. So the compounding effect of these small improvements all the time. If I ran 1% less every day, I'd end up 
uh, running 0 0.03 seconds a day. That probably wouldn't make us feel better. And so the idea there is that the first day is going to be easy, the second day is going to be easy, the third day is going to be, and as we're building that up, it can continue to be easy. So particularly with things like a meditation practice, starting really, really short, you know, like two minutes, which isn't all that easy, but, um, and then slowly growing to three minutes, not to 30. Um, so that's that power of, of small changes. Let's see what I got next. Oh, here's the sustainability versus effort chart. So focusing on that sustainability is more important than the small, the, than the, the short-term successes. Um, if I graph sustainability on one uh, axis, the y-axis, and effort on this other one, well, I can find a very sustainable habit that takes no effort. Uh, that is also called laziness. <laughs> um, or... I can find a habit that takes a huge amount of effort but isn't, uh, isn't particularly sustainable, and that's called burnout. Um, and so finding that middle ground somewhere in between the two that balances our sustainability and our effort is how we build lasting, lasting change. The next chart I want to share with you is breaking big habits down. So this is my cell phone habit. Um, last time I showed this kind of sense of our motivation day in and day out, it, it's waves all over the place. Well, it turns out that having, consuming no news is a habit that's around here or so. You know, I've, I've decided I'm gonna do this one thing and it's that tall, except for my motivation never gets that high. So how can I break this into smaller habits that look more like that so that almost every day I can do that? So. What I'm trying now is I've broken this into devices, time, and websites. So instead of trying to eliminate news, I'm trying to eliminate news on my phone. Instead of trying to eliminate these 10 websites, I'm trying to eliminate these two and so on. I'm mostly starting with my phone. And I've actually found some pretty good success in terms of when I first look at my phone every day. So I give myself uh, a couple of moments of peace at the start of the day, about an hour of peace on weekdays. And I made it up to like two o'clock in the afternoon on last Saturday, so I was excited about that. And so I wanna jump into uh, self-compassion a little bit and the work of Kristen Neff uh, with another poem. Has anybody heard Wild Geese? It's a poem by Mary Oliver. Ah, oh, such an amazing poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place 
in the family of things. You do not have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So to me, that's so much about letting intuition be a part of of your experience Um, and bringing that curiosity to the experience before we bring before bring the judgment. We have, we have this inside of us. Really, this, the practice of mindfulness, it's an uncovering. It's not like a learning something new. It's something that already exists inside of us. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Kristen Neff and self-compassion. I'm going to give you the short version. and uh, She's got a great TED Talk and all these kinds of things. Uh, I think it really applies nicely to school environments um, because Kristen Neff starts from the perspective of uh, the self-esteem movement. She's 40 some years old. Um, She was raised during the self-esteem movement. I remember I was raised during self-esteem movement and in my health class I remember chanting, I am lovable and capable. I don't know, like Saturday Night Live had has Stuart Smalley, and I'm like, did they get that from Stuart Smalley? I am lovable and capable. I am lovable and capable. I lack. And we had to make sure that not I had. I am hated and dumb. Um, and that was almost like a mantra, almost like a chant. Um, and so she talks a lot about self-esteem and the challenges of self-esteem um, for us as humans that uh, certainly, first off, Self-esteem is conditional and it's relative. So the relative part is, you know, for me to think um, above average, somebody has to be below average. Everybody got trained to think they're above average. So when things aren't going going right for us, we we blame because I'm above average. How could I have gotten that wrong? It was the teacher's fault, or um, you know, life isn't fair, things like that. Um, we become perfectionists and we become risk avoidant because if we're above average and great, uh, we shouldn't try new things because if we do them poorly, then that kills that dynamic. Um, But the conditional part is really the tough part that when we're doing great and we're at the top of the world, our self-esteem is high, but we don't really need it. And when when we're at our lows, maybe we've had a couple recent failures, That's when self-esteem tells us, oh, you're no good. You've failed at these last couple of things. So Kristen introduces this model of self-compassion, which really is this balancing out effect that when we're doing well, self-compassion might remind us of of the, the gifts that we've gotten from others and might remind us that it's not always gonna be like this. So maybe we save it for a rainy day. And of course, when we're down, self-compassion, that's when it comes in and says, hey, you know, next time it'll be different. You're not going to fail every time. Um, you, did the best that you, you did the best that you could. Um, so she's done all this research on self-compassion practices. And I think it flies into the face a lot of this um, kind of like American pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, and just grit your way through things and tough it out. Um, she has a little bit of a different approach. And so um, her research has shown that when you practice self-compassion, you have have more creativity, you have higher motivation. A lot of times with my students, they never believe that you're more motivated 
when you're being compassionate, like when you, you know, when you're easy on yourself when you failed. Um, but a lot of this she did with, um, with studies where she had students take a SAT style test. So they took this really hard SAT style test. Um, the average score was 40%. And she divided them up into three groups. And the first group, she said, uh, um, you know, uh, you're really smart. So I'm going to give you the actual uh, answers of the test, and you can study as much as you want, and then go study. Another group, she just said, here's the, here's the, here's the answers. You can study more, and then take the test. The third group, she said, you know, these tests are really, really hard. So do the best you can, but know that, you know, whatever happens, happens. So it turns out that the group that got that kind of compassionate message, that last message, studied 50% more than the other two groups um, that had gotten either a self-esteem message of you're super smart or not. Um, and the scores ended up being commensurate with that. Um, they've also done a study where they had people write about a difficult experience in their life, and half the people in the study uh, just wrote for 10 minutes. The other half got a compassion prompt in the middle of that uh, uh, 10 minutes of writing. And apparently there's a standardized creativity test. It has something to do with they give you a bunch of shapes and how many different ways can you rearrange these shapes to make new sets of shapes. And the people who had gotten that self-compassion prompt as they were writing were 60% more creative. And heck, I suppose you could prove just about anything with academic research. But that particular study had about 200 people. And you know, I've, from practicing it myself, have, have seen what self-compassion uh, can do for me. Kristen Neff, the way she builds out self-compassion is with, with three things. So the first thing is you got to have mindfulness. You have got to have that awareness um, that you're suffering, that maybe you're being self-critical or maybe you're jealous or maybe you're, you're feeling grief or loss. Um, so making that recognition of what's happening to me right now. What, what am I doing? Um, so you have the mindfulness. And then this was really important for me. And, uh, you know, I, I shared at the start my own story. Uh, fortunately, I went to grad school and I took a course where we had to develop a habit. So I decided to try to build the habit of self-compassion. There's this self-compassion score. You can go to Kristen Neff's website. And I scored fine on mindfulness. And I scored fine on self-soothing, self-kindness, what we did at the start. Um, but the middle one is a sense of a shared experience of common humanity. So recognizing that what I'm going through right now, somebody probably in this room is going through a very similar experience as that. Um, because when I fail, I've got this message that says, oh my gosh, how could you, nobody would have made the mistake that you just did. And of course, everybody's made that mistake three times already. Um, so reminding yourself of the shared experience that we have. That's the second piece. And then that third piece is uh, giving care to ourselves, self-soothing and self-kindness. Thank you for practicing with me tonight. I hope, uh, 
I hope we're not too filled up. And perhaps you brought a tool. We'll bring a tool home with you that's supportive as you build out your habits. Uh, I'll be back on December 9. December 11th? Yes, December 11th. It's another Tuesday. <laughs> Don't come on a Sunday. We won't be here. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, sustainable habits.